Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Smodekindle, SVP of Product and Programming with ACFCS, and on this episode, we're setting out a lofty goal for ourselves. We're going to give you a sneak peek into the future of money. If you're anything like me, you might think of the concept of money as fairly static. It doesn't change that much, but the reality is actually more complicated. Value transmission has been continuously evolving ever since human beings traded things like shells and stones as a form of money. And at the current moment, this evolution of money is happening at warp speed. Cryptocurrencies are one factor driving changes in the monetary world, but faster payments in fiat currency, the rise of open banking, the role of fintechs, and much more is also at play. As money transforms, are our regulatory frameworks as well as compliance programs keeping pace with these changes? In this episode, we speak to Carol House, Executive in Residence at Terranet Ventures, and Dave Jevons, EVP of CypherTrace at MasterCard, for an insightful look at a rapidly changing financial system. And I'm very excited to have this caliber of expertise on this topic. This conversation isn't just big picture thinking, although we'll do plenty of that too. These changes are happening now and financial crime and risk management professionals need to respond. We'll give you advice on how to prepare for the future of money as well as react to the present reality. Well, Carol, Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Crimecast. It is truly a pleasure having this much brain power and expertise on the program. I'm very excited for this conversation. It's going to be wide ranging, uh, look at a variety of current trends, uh, and also I think leave the listeners with quite a bit of a, a thought provoking material as they think through what the future looks like of payments and financial services. So again, Carol, Dave, uh, thanks for being here and uh, really appreciate your time on this on this episode. All right, Brian. Absolutely thrilled to be here. (laughs) Yeah, Brian. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Yeah. So let's get right into it, and let's start off with your thoughts on this. uh, You know, this fairly grandiose title we've given this podcast: "The Building Blocks of the Future of Money." It's a, it's a, uh, a a tough uh, title to live up to, but I think we can. I think we can do it. So. we all agree, or hopefully we all agree out there, that money and financial systems are going to look very different in 20 to 25 years. But I'm wondering, what are the current factors really shaping those changes? What do you see as the key trends, the key developments that are leading us towards this future of money? And Carol, you know, you've been heavily involved in uh, a lot of these discussions at variety of levels, including some of the highest levels of the U.S. government. So what are your thoughts on the current factors driving the changes in the monetary system? Oh, that's uh, a great question. Um, but and, and I totally uh, intend for Dave to solve it, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I appreciate you framing it first as a pretty grandiose question, because that's 
that that is sort of how we felt about it when I was at at the White House um, at the National Security Council, and we were um, you know working for, uh, on and supporting uh, President Biden's executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. Um, and I think those we saw the potential for both digitization. Um, and this prevalence and democratization of an increasing reliance on digital systems and incredible new technologies as a part of the strategic backdrop for some of the needs for evolution in finance, as well as a lot of the other challenges that we face related um, related to the existing financial system. So I'll, I'll highlight a couple of those, and all of those, I think, really contributed to asking Treasury then to work with the rest of the interagency um, and key regulators like the Federal Reserve um, to develop the Future of Money report. So like I mentioned, it's it's a really strategic, complex geopolitical backdrop, right, where we have um, the U.S. as well as other nations trying to shape their own you know, national innovations in emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and quantum biotechnology, hypersonics, robotics, like just lots of um, critical technologies um, that are all a part of a promise to boost economic growth. Um, we also have a really critical stage of geopolitical comp strategic competition, um, potentially at, the, at its most sensitive and complex moment since at least World War II or prior to World War II um, in the stage of um, thinking about the U.S., because, of course, I, I came from U.S. regulators and U.S. government, um, you know, the role of nations like Russia and China um, and their interest in wanting to create alternative payment systems um, and mechanisms for being able to get around and circumvent things like, um, like U.S. sanctions regimes. Um, all of those are also important for thinking about money. But also, I want to really get into some of the critical pieces um, that consumers are interested in, um, as well as financial institutions. We have a very opaque, complex, costly um, system right now for things like cross-border transfers and remittances. Um, and a lot of those challenges are a part of that strategic backdrop for the factors that are contributing to why people and the institutions are asking for a future of money that is different from the existing system. So I think understanding all of those co um, complicated factors um, that create a really interesting you know, ecosystem and web of whether it's economic, technological um, innovations, as well as a greater desire amongst the consumer base to be able to get direct access to um, to financial services. All of those mean that the future of money needs to look different than it does today. So I think what it looks like in that 20 to 25 year um, ecosystem, it depends on a few things. Um, but hopefully, um, it's a system that understands how to embrace some of the some of the interesting objectives that the, the decentralization community and paradigm shift um, is really pushing towards, which is people being able to to get direct access to financial services and getting more broad inclusion and, and access to capabilities, whether it's financial accounts, being able to send cheaper, faster, more efficient payments. Um, but then also, I'm hoping that that future of money creates the, the, the technological infrastructure, um, whether it's through, you know, cryptocurrency ecosystems or implementation of other payment modernizations like FedNow um, or even uh, potentially the implementation of wholesale or retail central bank digital currencies, all of these could create the technological and economic infrastructure for higher order developments for digital economies. Um, so I think that a lot of other um, you know, incredible innovations could be built off of 
a lot of design choices that are going to be made about what the different components of those ecosystems are. And Brian, I know that you want to get into um, what what those different pieces are and how they interrelate interrelate with each other. But um, I think hopefully that gives a little bit of a strategic backdrop of what I think is driving the need for a different future of money. Um, but then also um, what I'm hoping that that future of money will include um, to drive um, to drive objectives like financial inclusion um, and creating a more secure, interoperable, and resilient ecosystem um, for digital economies down the road. No, that's a fantastic answer and uh, a lot to unpack there. I think you've set us up very nicely for all of the topics we wanted to get into. So very much appreciate it. I mean, really interesting highlight of the the geopolitical aspects of this too. I, you know, I, I haven't been doing it as long as uh, uh, I haven't been in the financial crime arena as long as as Dave and and some others have, but I've never seen a time where there are so there's such a convergence of developments around uh, finance in general, but also financial crime risk, um, all at once. And you know, this geopolitical aspect is is a, a usually important part of the conversation too. Before we we move on to unpack a few of those components that you highlighted as some of the the building blocks of the future there, decentralized systems, cryptocurrencies came up a couple of times, uh, central bank, digital currencies, faster payments, all of these aspects. I want to turn to Dave for for any thoughts on on what he sees as as kind of the key factors driving this uh, this future development of money. Thanks, Brian. I'd uh, I'd like to add in a, a, a few items. Now, certainly modernization of payment systems uh, is happening all over the world, as Carol points out, and that will continue for decades and forever. There will be refreshes of payment systems, technologies, faster, cheaper, better, more secure. I think the other areas to think about are um, what's happening in emerging markets and um, what type of payments technology they're adopting, because a lot of these markets are jumping at, uh, ahead um, of legacy technology. And there's also in the ge geopolitical side of things, um, there's certainly the, the tension and the desire for Russia and China to build out new, new payment systems. And China was, for example, in Russia within one week of major payment systems pulling out after the invasion of Ukraine. So they're building, they're trying to build a very strong bond there. As, as uh, people may know, there's been a project, the digital uh, uh, one over there, which is trying to create a, uh, digital currency in China. But I'd also point out there's a there's a more subtle, interesting thing going on, which is um, with increasing uh, DeFi and also um, new kinds of finance companies in this area, there's a lot of desire in these smaller developing nations to get access to more stable currencies than what they have today. So for example, if you look at Egypt, where you've got massive deflation, it's hurting the commerce you know, for everybody. Nobody wants um, any Egyptian currency. And so you've got goods stuck at the border where people can't, it's really, they can't import or export. And so the desire to be able to have, even for small merchants, the ability to access alternate currency systems, to be able to get protection to move into, let's say a dollar, a euro, a basket or something like that, is some of the things that are driving this uh, these new financial products that we're seeing. It's also some of what's driving crypto um, 
there's whole use cases for for digital money and the future of money to change based on these emerging markets. Yeah, some great points there. And I think, yeah, I really appreciate having you both on here because it does provide this very international perspective. And I'm coming from the U.S. and uh, uh, a lot of our audience is, is North America. Although do we, have, uh, do we, we do have a global audience base. And um, it's very interesting to see the different challenges posed by you know monetary use cases in other countries, as you're saying, that do call for a much different, uh, a much different uh, set of of technologies and usages usages than maybe we see in the U.S. So um, appreciate that perspective, and I you know I want to dive into that point that you're bringing up now, which is crypto use cases. Um, and I have a couple of questions that I'll, I'll throw to you, Dave, to start with, and then uh, would love Carol's perspective on it too around. You know, first, first, I would say it's been an interesting development in the crypto and traditional finance or TradFi spaces, as some people call it, um, seeing a blurring of lines between these two worlds, right? Um, and just to throw a couple of examples out there, Kraken is receiving a banking license in the state of Wyoming. Uh, you see some major... Um, old guard type of institutions, Bank of New York Mellon, for example, launched a digital, digital assets custody branch, some other institutions getting to the digital asset custody space. Um, you know, and that maybe my, my view is a little outdated, but for a while there, it felt like, you know, crypto and, and traditional finance banks and others were operating in separate worlds. And I think there's still some of that out there, but increasingly, does this feel like, and especially as we look ahead, does this feel like crypto, Dave, kind of as you're you're saying with these, these solutions for alternate currencies, crypto and the traditional finance space are part of one increasingly unified financial system um, and is that likely to to continue? Are we likely to see, you know, the old oh, this is the crypto space and this is the bank space kind of fall away, and you know, movement between fiat and digital currencies or cryptocurrencies to become increasingly kind of seamless in the future, or am I just being too Pollyanna-ish? What do you think? Uh, banks are on a, on a spectrum. So there, for some banks are just trying to figure out that crypto exists and their customers are actually doing it because there's a lot of denial. But, you know, if you can't measure something, you have no idea what's actually happening. So there's a part about visibility and how widespread and how many customers want to use. And as we talked about, there's many use cases. Um, I think, yeah, absolutely, Brian. The worlds have merged. They're merging increasingly. For example, at MasterCard, we launched a product last year, which allows 22,000 banks to look at all of their credit card and debit card transactions and identify which ones are for crypto transactions and then risk score those. So that's exactly what happens in every other type of payment system. So you definitely are seeing the integration of them and that will continue uh, over time to get better, to get more secure. And as you point out, there are financial institutions in the US, but also many, many in Europe and in um, in the UAE and, and other countries that are building custody systems. There's the ETFs that are happening. So exchange traded funds, that looks like that's probably going to progress in the United States. There's, there's a lot of movement here to yes, blend the two worlds together. Excellent, thanks for that. 
Carol, any thoughts on this? You know, you've been very close to the, the crypto space. Uh, thoughts on on sort of how this is playing out between traditional finance and crypto and how that plays into this future of money. Yeah, um, I, and I, I, I agree with Dave that I think the future will, will generally be more integrated, um, including adaptation by more traditional or TradFi, as the DeFi sector likes to call it, um, institutions embracing certain aspects of the technology, um, as well as considering things like, you know, banking and providing accounts and other services for, um, for you know, the, the, the custodial providers and other um, companies that are directly in the space, um, but some of them also just engaging in it directly, like PayPal um, issuing um, their, uh, their PayPal US dollar coin um, or PayPal USD, I think is the name of their stable coin that they issued. Um, but I, and I, I think that that also nicely harmonizes with some of, um, some of what Dave mentioned before about emerging nations and economies that have been embracing some of these technologies um, in good ways where they see the, the benefits of some of this tech that, like, you know, with blockchain technology, blockchain was not created for privacy. Um, although there may still be some people that, um, that misunderstand this technology as anonymous, generally that's not, that is not a blockchain manifestation um, of it. It may be because there's some privacy enhancing technologies on top of it, but blockchain was generally made for, data integrity and auditability. So blockchain um, technology is very helpful for institutions and TradFi, um, as well as regulators and other government authorities that want things like transparency um, and like understanding into their broader system to, to, to manage things like monetary policy and understanding what levers that they should be pushing and pulling um, to keep their economy in check. Um, and so I think that a lot of those make them can once once you see nations really start to understand the nature of the technology, there's interest to want to embrace it. Um, there are also a lot of risks uh, that exist presently as manifested in a lot of implementations of crypto, um, and that has been scaring, um, whether it's regulators or more traditional institutions as well in certain ways. But I think that with the kinds of innovations that we're seeing across the sector, um, including whether it's the rise of reg tech capabilities like CypherTrace um, um, and Dave's team um, and or capabilities um, more broadly to integrate and build in certain types of controls and things that will do things that, that will have features that can defend consumers, uh, mitigate illicit finance and fraud risk, um, and enhance other aspects like like cybersecurity and operational resilience. Um, those kinds of market evolutions that have been happening and will continue to happen, I do expect to continue to make um, parts of these technologies more attractive. Um, that does not mean that all crypto that's around today, I think, survives into the future of money. Um, there's a lot of noise out there, but there's also a lot of really interesting innovations that are happening. So I think that there's there, there's really both sides. There's there's understanding that's happening and parts of you know actors in the TradFi space that are watching the sector and looking for markers that it has evolved and matured um, to mitigate um, key risks. Because um, I know we talked about banks before, like banks that engage in managing deposits and and facilitating transfers and engaging in lending activity. That sounds a lot like a lot of crypto um, projects that are out there. Not all of them are implementing the necessary controls that would make them, you know, held to or be able to hold up to the standards that we put to banks and for good reason. Um, but there are others that are specifically trying to drive those innovations. And I think that it will be those players that ultimately went out.
Carol, I'd like to I'd like to point um, our our conversation as well on the flip side of the coin here, which is um, Brian, as you were saying, you know, what's it going to be like in twenty twenty five years, and what are the building blocks? I think part of the answer, the other side of the coin, is we frankly don't know because so much yeah. thing, so much of this technology, so much of this social evolution of the usage of money and payments and what it's used for, and blockchain too, is being driven by people all over the world in small groups that you never know which of a thousand projects will take off and be the thing that changes how payments are done. You look at what happened in Brazil and that when they introduced the new payment network, they had 75% of the population on that in less than two years. That could happen here. So yeah. we just don't know what it could be. I also think that micropayments is an area, if you, we look 20, 25 years out, how can there not be micropayments? Which would, crypto is probably the best way to do it. Maybe there's a different technology that's cheaper, but the ability to, for example, as you visit content sites and visit blogs and all that stuff, instead of having to get Patreon accounts and all that to help fund content, instead of being bombarded by ads, you'll be able to donate a third of a cent every time you go look at some article or look at somebody's content and then it's ad free that's an example of transforming the nature of money and it brings to to brings a, a lot of interesting things can be done with that like you can do spam reduction but you can do an ad reduction but uh you also have fraud challenges too that we'll discover when it happens yeah i feel like we're discovering yeah, i love new fraud challenges every single day but sorry go ahead carol <laughs> No, you're totally right. Um, and and I think like that's part of the business model of Dave and his team over there trying to um, detect and fight and fight fraud as well as all the other reg tech firms that are out there. Um, I love I love that point, Dave. And you're right that we we don't know. Um, and that's that that's a part of why I, I, I think we need to embrace um, whether it's a policy approach, um, of course, the um, the, the resident former regulator um, in me think, uh, needing to make sure that we have a policy approach um, <laughs> both course. on the regulatory <laughs> side. Yeah. <laughs> and on the research and development side that enables and promotes development, the kinds of developments that we can't foresee right now, but making sure that they're building in and integrating the kinds of features that we know that a democratic future of money can enable so, so that that future consumer driven economy that Dave is pointing to um, and this idea of a future Internet that enables consumers to own and get compensated for their data and their content in a decentralized way and really which also reshapes the nature of intermediaries and what role that they play in things like payments and content generation and hosting. There's a a lot of implications there, um, but and and a lot of potential consequences, including some that are not always positive, um, with with that decentralization. But that's why I don't think the future is is a completely decentralized economy or internet one way or the other. There's going to be a lot of hybrid and integration, and I'm I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Um, but it really Dave's point really really underscores the need for whatever the policy approaches be on things like research and development competitiveness, as well as regulation um, and security needing to enable and try to shape the ecosystem in a way that benefits us. Because um, right now, like, like um, I think also consistent with what Dave pointed to, we don't really know, I don't know what the role of the U.S. will be in 20 to 25 years. I hope that we have reinforced um, the U.S. leading role inside of the financial system, as well as achieving other objectives like inclusion, equity, um, more efficient um, and safer payments. 
But I mean, right now there are trends towards less dollarization, not complete de-dollarization, but less dollarization. And with those other geo- geopolitical factors that I pointed to, like I, um, I think that all of those things need to be considered in a very competitive approach um, with our policies to mutually support each other to make sure that we're building um, a money system that that supports those desires for U.S. leadership. Carol, I would suggest that one of, oh, sorry, Brian. No, go ahead. You might have to edit that part out. (laughs) Um, Sorry for stepping on you there. Um, Carol, uh, hang on. Carol, I agree with these points. I think the the U.S. needs to really make a decision on the, and how they're going to regulate stable coins, because I think the U.S., you know, the, the U.S. monetary policy is largely based on dollarization and using the dollar for major trade and as the reference uh, for global trade. Um, I think we're missing a trick if you think about it from a U.S. perspective around the stable coin side of things. That's a huge opportunity to do it right. Um, whether it's I don't think it's going to be a U.S. Uh, stable coin or rather a U.S. Uh, CBDC. I don't think we're going to get that done because, you know, you can't build one in three years. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, how <laughs> with our political system, you can't build one in three years. Um so I don't know that we'll have that. But I think regulation on the stablecoin side could be a way to help the U.S. monetary policy. And I feel at this point that there's a danger there. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, either way, um, and consistent to Brian's initial point about about crypto, the real issue is like that crypto is not going away. The technology isn't. Um, Stablecoins aren't. And while stablecoins are partially regulated in the U.S., they're not consistently regulated in the U.S., um, especially beyond anti-money laundering. Um, there, there just isn't a comprehensive federal uh, framework for prudential expectations for stablecoin issuers. Um, and I think that I think there's authorities that the executive branch can use right now uh, to put in place a framework, even if interim uh, for stablecoin providers, um, or we can or hope for legislation, um, which will be challenging to uh, to get passed underneath this Congress. But that um, but but I'm inspired by certain members that continue to drive under the previous Congress and this Congress still trying to figure out the right framework to put in place there. Um, so I hope that a mix between executive action and regulatory action um, will will put in place something that provides that kind of clarity and on-ramp to, to proper regulation and supervision from a prudential perspective for stablecoin issuers. Um, I totally agree that we need that. On the CBDC front, um, I I don't know if we'll have a retail CBDC um, in in the future. I do think that it's that it's not an either or. It's it's an and. Um, wholesale to me seems much more likely. I I totally agree with you there. That wholesale to me seems like a very like if, if I were driving the R and D strategy, I would be starting there um, simply because of all the fun challenges that, especially in the U S, that you get um, around issues like privacy um, and even the challenges that we have with digital identity, which you can't do a retail CBDC without getting that identity right. Um, so there's other building blocks that have to happen first. Um, but I think Dave, your point about how far behind we are compared to certain other nations on CBDC experimentation. Um, It just underscores why we need to be promoting R&D and that kind of assessment to determine what we need for um, a potential CBDC, whether wholesale or retail. Um, I totally agree. Stablecoins aren't going anywhere. We need to put in place a framework for them. 
Yes, and I think using maybe the the MECA or proposed MECA two regulations, which are um, a European based, uh, might be one of the frameworks to look at. And you know, I'm a citizen of multiple countries, so I want to represent the world a little bit in the conversation, not just completely U.S. focused. And yes, when we're in yeah. Europe, we see a lot of you know, there's talk about a digital euro. Well, you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But um, there are countries who understand that. Um, this is a good thing maybe for wholesale payments, et cetera. But there's others who are trying to do retail uh, level CBDCs. I don't think they know what they're getting into, but um, it, it's an evolving conversation because there's, as you can imagine, there's com companies out there, numerous of them that have spent 60 years doing fraud detection and issuing identities and managing them for payments. So um, that kind of, that's again, back, back to Brian's thing about merging. So if you're going to do a retail CBDC and some, I'm convinced some com countries will try and um, somebody will, will actually roll it out or multiple will. Um, you, that's that blending of technology, taking that, that fraud identity dispute resolution capability that exists today in retail payments and bringing them into something like a, a retail CBDC. So there's a couple of countries that have CBDCs currently, um, and a bunch of others that have pilot projects. Has anyone, you know, any kind of notable successes out there? Is anyone really kind of getting this right so far that you would you would highlight, or any at least interesting failures to date? Well, I think the Bahamas, I'm the sorry. Bahamas sand dollar is like a very interesting project and has an interesting use case about offlane transaction processing on islands when, you know, there's no connectivity and other things and distribution of benefits to islanders. Um, then there's El Salvador, which said, you know, hey, we'll just do Bitcoin. Carol, what what, what are your insights here? Oh, no, I appreciate that, those points. Um and you're right. I think on on getting it right, like I, um, I, I guess with the qualifier that like economies are different and CBDCs are definitely not going to be a one size fits all. And certainly not like I, I don't think that the Bahamas, uh, certainly not that the Bahamas sand dollar implementation works for a U.S. digital dollar, but like it, it also isn't meant to be the U.S. digital dollar. So uh, I, um, I, I appreciate the, um, the examples that Dave pointed to. Um, I would say that I. I um, generally probably wouldn't point to the El Salvador example as one that I would encourage central banks to consider adopting, um, you know, an asset that, that they don't have control of and a permissionless ledger. I, I think there's a lot of complications <laughs> that come into that choice. Um, really? Uh, but, uh, that, of course, I, I am not, uh, you know, <laughs> I, am, I am not in charge of El Salvador. So I would, I would encourage all central banks to think very hard about that. I, so, um, but, uh, yeah, pointing to um, Dave's uh, apt point about needing to think globally, you know, 19 of the G20 members um, are now in, like, advanced stage of CBDC development, um, and at least nine are already in pilot. Um, and there's a lot of significant progress that's been made. Um, you have there's you have a lot of 
examples like China has been thinking about this for a very long time. And um, so I am not pointing to China as a great example of like that. This is what the U.S. dollar um, needs to account for. There are a lot of concerns around security and privacy and human rights abuses um, that point to why I think that there's some noise right now in the U.S., unfortunately, and some misunderstanding where there's an assumption that a U.S. digital dollar would look anything like um, would like it like the CNY. Um, The thing that China gets gets right in a lot of their strategic approaches is thinking further in advance um, and strategically aligning a, like a whole of nation sort of efforts towards achieving some of those objectives. Um, there's, there's real problems with that, uh, with other, uh, with again, the fact that they don't account for um, important democratic principles being built into those strategies. And that's why um, that's why the Chinese approach does not work um, for, for other nations. But I, I do wish that, that, that that aspect, though, the thinking long, like a long way down the road and recognizing that it's going to take a, a decade of research and development and experimentation for us to do things like assessing what the right implementation should look like, the different design choices that come to play. Um, so I, I wish that we would just engage earlier and and more strongly in whether it's international standards bodies um, and or in pilot programs. We at least have more um, Fed branches that are engaged now in CBDC experimentation. Um, we have San Francisco, New York, and uh, Boston, Boston being the first um, branch of the Fed that was really looking at this. So I'm, I'm very excited about the U.S. Uh, conducting experimentation there, but I think there's a lot of other nations and a lot of um, innovative work that's being driven under the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements um, Innovation Hub, um, things like Enbridge, like Singapore has been involved in a lot of pro- in a lot of pilot projects as well. So I would point to some of them as having some really innovative forward-looking um, approaches or just fast approaches to thinking about this. Um, there's That does not mean that their entire model uh, is something that needs to be replicated, but I hope that the U.S. will take um, a, a signal from the speed and strength of other countries' um, desire to work interoperably um, across different regional pilots um, as a signal that we should be doing the same with our partners, whether it's G7 Plus or 5i um, or other G20 partners that we feel would support the right types of democratic principles and standards uh, being built into um, any future CBDC experimentations, um, as well as uh, cryptocurrency uh, regulatory frameworks. Yeah, a lot of fantastic points there. I mean, interoperability is going to be a, a really interesting challenge when when we even get there, right? Um, but thinking thinking about it now is going to be crucial to as we you know kind of build towards the uh, the future of money. Um, and I mean, just just a great again reminder and reflection of the point you you made earlier around the policy and the regulatory framework that's needed to drive this. And Dave, I think you brought up MICA as one example of, you know, maybe a, a more uh, effective or forward thinking regulatory framework in the, the digital asset space. And um, Carrie mentioned the executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. So there's bits and pieces here, but uh, really pulling it together and driving it forward in a, as you said, more rapid and more robust way is going to become extremely, uh, extremely important important uh, question on one of these build these these pieces on the uh, regulatory and policy side that we haven't talked about yet um and again you know keeping the global aspect of this conversation in mind i want to bring up a a global challenge in the crypto space um which is the travel rule and regardless of what the future of money 
looks like uh, it seems like regulators and agencies around the world have been very clear that the travel rule is going to be part of it, right? Um, this was referred to by some as the summer of the travel rule, since we had uh, several countries all around the world um, coming online with, with travel rule compliance. Um, FATF has been banging the drum on travel rule. Uh, what is the state of travel rule compliance in the crypto space? You know, we talk about technology solutions that are going to be needed to kind of secure the future of money. This seems like it's it's going to need to be one of them. Um, you know, are we close to solving this challenge? I guess, Dave, you've been very close to this uh, and have, uh, I think, put forth some really good thought leadership in this space. Any thoughts on on progress and, and remaining obstacles around the travel rule? Well, Brian, when we uh, look at travel rule, uh, that applies to all financial institutions and payment providers pretty much globally. Um, there are, they didn't include crypto because they, when they wrote these rules 20 years ago or 15 years ago in the United States, they, they, um, you know, crypto wasn't really around. Um, so the addition of crypto into travel rule is a natural thing. Uh, there is quite a bit of work going on in travel rule at the financial action task force on other areas of travel rule that are not, uh, just crypto. So, this is an area that uh, we can expect a lot of activity on, not just in the crypto area. Now, on the crypto uh, side of adoption, the sunrise problem has been a big one, which is if one country says you have to send originator and beneficiary information to another country for transactions over, let's say, $1,000 or 1,000 euros, and the other country has no such regulation, then what do you do? Um, so this problem has been solved to some extent by several technology vendors. Uh, MasterCard has one solution, but there are several others out there. I, I would say that I, my estimation of market penetration of travel rule uh, compliance among virtual asset service providers globally is probably 10%, maybe less, um, but that's growing. Uh, there's also people who, you know, companies who have bought travel rule solutions and have not turned them on yet because no one's come knocking from the regulator. Um, so even though there may be a regulation, uh, they will wait until someone knocks on the door and correct it. But it's uh, anyway, that's the state of travel rule. I would also suggest that uh, a very important agenda item for the industry needs to be interoperability between various travel rule standards and um, implementations. So for example, if you go to a store uh, and you want to buy something with a credit card, let's say, you can put in multiple credit cards and the terminal will accept it, the merchant can accept it. it, it not so with travel rule today. So with travel rule, there's multiple enclaves of technologies, companies, and standards, and interconnectivity is not great. Now, there's been some movement on the, on travel rule with TRISA, the Travel Information Sharing Alliance, as well as uh, TRP, the Travel Rule Protocol out of Europe. So there's there it, that was just happened in uh, September of 2023. So there's been some recent movements, um, but there's quite a bit more work that needs to be done in the industry. I'll Thanks. completely echo Dave's comments. Yeah, um, I... 
I, I am saddened by the state of travel rule compliance across the industry. Um, I also uh, am very much sympathetic to Dave's point about that the regulators haven't come knocking. Um, I think that the regulators have been overly generous, um, but uh, overly is not shared by many across the sector. So take what I say with a grain of salt. I was the regulator, but I, I think they've been extremely generous on enforcement of the travel rule because of a recognition of the state of adoption of solutions. Um, but the reality is that the, the travel rule, it, the reason why it's a building block for compliance and security um, for, uh, for the cryptocurrency ecosystem against illicit finance is that the travel rule does not exist in a vacuum. Um, the travel rule essentially is a requirement to understand who is on both sides of a transaction, um, to keep that information um, yourself, uh, to understand it, and then also to share it if you're sending um, a transfer directly to another financial institution, um, like in the crypto's case um, with another exchange. Um, this requirement is completely consistent and harmonious with a general AML program, an anti-money laundering program to understand your risk of your customers and to understand the risk of the fact that you might be facilitating money laundering. Um, it is also completely harmonious with sanctions checks, which at least in the U.S. framework are strict liability. Um, so basically, the state of compliance of the travel rule is an indicator, I believe, of how generally the sector is doing more broadly on AML and sanctions. Um, I would give the sector a greater score than just, just 10%. So I'm not saying that it's like that, that it is exactly equivalent, but basically like I, it is, it was always unclear to me when I was at the FATF in, in engaging in these negotiations, how an exchange could seriously state that they are really able to mitigate and understand their sanctions risk and exposure if they don't understand who's on either side. Um, I realize that uh, of a transaction. Um, I realize that like one of the major challenges there, though, is that it's not just about you understanding who's on either side of a transaction. It's about providing that information to the other party. So understanding that that is a separate part of the equation. Um, Dave pointed to the Sunrise problem. You know, I've that there's levels of sympathy that I have and don't have there, um, where I think that there's. Again, the the ask that I would have for an exchange is like, do you feel comfortable sending this transfer to another exchange if if they don't understand who their customer is? So, again, do you really understand uh, the nature of whether or not your transaction is is facilitating um, illicit activity? But um, but I I am excited to see that more countries are adopting um, some of these requirements as regulations. We're only at about like I think around 20 nations in FATF's latest update on the state of implementation of the travel rule um, have been put in place just in policy. Um, but then again, to Dave's point, policy without implementation is useless. So I, I hope that um, I hope that regulators will consider enforcing more. Um, I'm not saying that an exchange needs to come down if it's not complying. I'm saying that like whether it's civil money penalties or other types of enforcement actions, um, I think that they're called for and we need more regulators, not just the U.S. playing global police here, um, to enforce this requirement and recognize that it's um, that it's totally harmonious with AML programs generally. Um, I laud efforts like TRISA and that Dave has been involved in and spearheading. Um, they were helping to create the market evolutions that were needed in the space. The solutions exist out there. Some of the harmony around interoperability is really, I think, going to be driven more by markets than by regulators. Um, but the markets aren't going to adopt it if they're not being required to. Like we've seen that with AML requirements. Generally, we need this to be a requirement in more nations. So it points to the need for more countries to adopt those FATF standards.
And I would also say that you don't have to have a heavy handed approach to it either. You know, you can, you can yeah. have a phone call, you can have a site visit, you can have a educational conference for VASPs in your region. You know, if you're the regulator and, or it doesn't have to be like, I'm marching in there with an order. I mean, yeah, you obviously need to have a hammer at some point to be able to really make people comply, but it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, I think yeah. more engagement with, between regulators and the, and the VASPs in the region uh, would be great and it will help facilitate it. That's a great point. I, I think FinCEN's model has been kind of like that in, in my view where like they, you aren't seeing lots of enforcement actions being brought, like, you know, pointing to failures to comply with the travel rule um, there. So while, like, FinCEN's position is that it has been a requirement um, for many years, um, I think that taking that, like I, I, like Dave mentioned, a reasonable approach, an understanding approach to get the industry to understand, like, we mean it, this is a requirement, what's needed, um, yeah, there's a balancing act between both sides. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and I think it's, you know, in some ways a uh, encouraging development that there is, a, yeah, maybe not not everyone who's <laughs> on the receiving end of regulation examination would agree, but it does seem there's a, there's a bit more of a, a trend away from just, you know, beating institutions down with a, a penalty stick and having more of a consultative and collaborative approach where it is a more of a, a partnership, so to speak, between regulator and regulated to get it right. Um, and that seems to make a lot of sense and be a, a good model to, to continue to adopt going forward, not just on travel rule implementation, but, you know, as there is so many, as we talked about, converging technological developments and changes in the monetary system, it's going to need to be that level of collaboration between regulator and regulated entities to continue to, to get it right. I want to return to a point you made, Dave, because I think it's a, a really important one on, you know, this isn't just the travel rule for crypto. This is a wider issue for the payments ecosystem. And there's been a lot of talk around data rich payments and increasing the amount of data in payments broadly um, in order to, you know, manage real-time payments more effectively, mitigate the financial crime risk, that type of thing. So do you see that as, a real one of the really important elements to the future of money is enhancing just the amount of data that's traveling with payments generally and the you know interoperability of payment systems to handle that data um again as we look towards you know the, the future of monetary systems yes i think that that's a good insight you need to have richer payloads there also needs to be privacy controls you have to be able to think about where's that data being stored um, compliance with different privacy regimes around the world, whether it's GDPR uh, or others. Um, what I've learned at my last two years at MasterCard is um, that's already happening. So there's, and there's quite a bit of user benefit. So I'll give you an example. If you can put URLs in a, let's say a credit card payment, online or physical, that talk, that allow you to then see it on your statement and come back and click to it, you can now get all kinds of information about 
who that payment really was to, what was it for. It also allows you to do dispute resolution. It allows you to manage subscriptions of payments, cancel subscriptions. Again, no matter what the payment system is. So yes, enrichment of payments is uh, got great utility to consumers. It's got great utility for financial institutions. It reduced costs. It's got great utility for whoever is sending the payment and also receiving it, a merchant. Um, so yeah, we just have to think about the privacy controls of it as it moves to different payment type of networks, whether as it moves to crypto or other types of payment systems. Yeah, no, fantastic points. And uh, great points are, that both of you have made around, you know, this isn't just a anti-money laundering, anti-fraud, you know, benefit when we talk about uh, increased data or increased security, but it can also be a, a consumer benefit too, a benefit to the users of these monetary systems. So very important perspective to keep in mind that it's, it's uh, dually beneficial to build out some of these these frameworks properly. Uh, we've We've kind of touched on this issue i feel like it's been floating around this whole conversation so uh as we as we move towards the end of the conversation i want to i want to hone in on a point that you know uh i think is is going to be very critical and i know is near and dear to both of your hearts which is identity um and you know we've moved from identity verification to identity proofing. Um, but it's it, regardless of, of what it's called, this issue of identity is is already essential, is only going to become more essential um, as we think of the future of money. And you know we're facing a number of challenges in the identity space, including the ability to fake identities, use malicious uh, AI for deep fakes or voice generation. Um, but there's also a lot of promise in this space too. So is, I guess I'll start with just the, the fundamental question of how do you view identity? How important is it? Is it really a building block of the future of money? And if so, what do you see as the way forward for securing identities in a very uh, transitional world of, of finance right now? And, and Carol, I'll throw that to you first for any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, and Brian, fantastic segue, uh, I think, from Dave's points about privacy, because you um, you can't have a conversation about privacy without identity um, and vice versa. Um, so identity means a lot of things, right? Um, in the context of, of AML regulations, you're thinking about knowing your customer, um, but even inside of knowing your customer, that's really just a colloquial term that refers to a lot of different things. It's that initial, like it's that initial onboarding of a customer where they're presenting some identification. Um, you're creating an account for them, logging that identity, and then having to form a reasonable belief that that identity is real and it belongs to this person. Um, and then it's more broadly understanding the risk profile of your customer. That can be looking at things, monitoring things like account access activity um, and authentication for that customer's identity um, to get access to their services, um, logging in with a username and password or using multi-factor, hopefully. Um, but then also more broadly, just monitoring um, their activity, negative news, um, you know, other types of um, of 
uh, of, of evolutions and things that arise in the course of their activity that might point to the fact that their risk is higher. So part of customer due diligence is really a, a much broader um, understanding of somebody's risk and identity. Um, outside of just regulation, identity means a lot of other things. It can mean my um, my gamer tag um, and my terrible accuracy score in my um, online gaming community. Uh, it can also be my status as a veteran to get access to veterans benefits uh, from the federal government. Um, and it's also my credit score. Um, it can be my reputation. Uh, identity means so many different things. And in this future digital economy um, that envisions especially crypto um, asset adaptations um, are especially interesting for identity because since blockchain can support applications really with uh, across all the different functions that exist, um, it's possible for finance um, type type of applications to really commingle with other types of activities that occur across the internet where identity, you expect different identity transparency and understanding for your internet activity than you do for your financial activity, right? Like we don't have you know, your customer obligations for all internet activity the same way that we do for financial activity. Um, although there's some, some interesting ramifications that may come from the regulations that commerce is currently developing for infrastructure providers to know their customers. But right now there's a, there's a different, a, dis a disparate level of privacy um, and transparency that we expect for identity across financial activity and non-financial activity. So the privacy implications and discussions um, in the future of crypto and decentralized payments across Web3 um, are really are really interesting and are complicated, I guess, uh, in trying to figure out like what are the technologies um, and what are the policy objectives that are needed for this future that can commingle on the same range rails, which is a different part of the future of money, right? Where historically we've had different rails for financial activity and for like internet activity. Now on the same blockchain-based rails, you can have information transfer and value transfer. Um, so there's, there's different types of discoverability and needs for identity to fulfill regulatory and proper security obligations and functions. Um, so I, I think that it'll be interesting service providers um, like maybe Dave uh, <laughs> and, and his team that'll help to solve, uh, to help to solve the identity problem um, in this future of money. I have a, 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 another layer of identity, um, and I think it is that take what Carol has said and combine it with uh, digital credentials. So credentials that are linked to identity. These credentials are the way that you can access all these services, but it also allows you to have the privacy controls that Carol was talking about. So for example, am I over 18? Am I over 21? Is my name Dave or David? Do I reside in Spain or United States? Or am I actually in Costa Rica? All of these things are needed. Um, I think to me, identity, or let's call it credentials linked to identity on the internet are absolutely crucial. The time has long come for that. This type of thing, I think, is going to be required, for example, to access DeFi services. Today, in decentralized finance services, it's almost impossible to uh, really comply with sanction screening, counter-terrorist, and anti-money laundering controls. It's almost impossible to fulfill obligations around uh, currency uh, transaction reports or suspicious activity reports, all of that stuff is almost impossible because there is there is no digital identity type of service. 
A digital identity service with credentials also is crucial to solving the scam problem. And the scam problem is massive. Romance scams, ransomware, I'm traveling and I lost my passport, please send me money scams, all of it. Investment scams, all of it. If we have a digital identity system with credentials and privacy controls on the internet, we're able to start making a dent on scam farms where they've got hundreds of people in buildings just sending out romance scams. And now they've got access to AI. So boy, that's not going to be real helpful, is it? Um, So I think identity is crucial. And it also paves the way for things like those micropayments we were talking about in the future of money. But it also, in the end of the day, paves the way for electronic democracy where people can actually vote and make monetary decisions about how their tax dollars are actually spent. If you can actually have an identity on the internet that's secure and trusted, and you can link it to people's taxes that they've paid, then you can start introducing the ability for people to actually direct their own money. That's talking 25 years out, but I think identity is crucial. That is... uh... That is very exciting uh, concepts there, and and you know when we, when we talk about the the future of money, now we've we've really gone far beyond it, right? But it's really interesting to see Carol, as you said, you know, now that we have systems that can transmit both value and information, how that just really transforms not just financial transactions, but but so much more. Um, Dave, as, as you're alluding to, so you know, I feel like we've really even we've really even hit the tip of the iceberg in this conversation around the future of money, and uh, have opened up entirely new possibilities for future podcasts along the way. But uh, this has been fantastic. I've been both uh, excited and and very intrigued by listening in on this, and I really appreciate the time and the conversation. I just want to end with with a question. Um, and you know, I'm I'm curious as to you know, we've talked about a lot of I think very positive potential developments. We've admitted, thank you, Dave, for for doing so, that we really don't know what the future of money is going to be, even in 20 to 25 years. But I, I'm just curious for for each of you, are you optimistic about the future of monetary systems? Do you looking ahead, you know, at the next 20 25 years, is it? A, are you at a place where you say? you know, wow, I'm really excited for what's to come? Or are you more pessimistic? Are you more saying, we have a lot of challenges that we need to overcome? We have a lot of uh, uh, regulatory policy, geopolitical obstacles, and I don't know how we're going to get there. So any thoughts on that? Are you optimistic or or pessimistic about the future of money? I'll, I'll throw that up for whoever wants to take it. I'll start. I'm skeptically optimistic. Um, I... Uh, so that's uh, that's helpful, right? Uh, sort of a middle ground between the two, but I'll I'll lean on the side of optimistic because I just I um, I believe in the strength of uh, of U.S. industry um, to help drive the economic developments that are needed. Um, I'm I'm skeptical because, um, frankly, I'm more skeptical of certain industry trends. Um, like we had this issue with developments 
even of just the internet, as it grew, um, there were a lot of considerations around whether regulation or controls around privacy needed to be introduced. And ultimately, it was a very soft touch approach that was taken at the time. And a lot of the like core devs were the ones saying, no, we'll like industry will solve this, we'll figure it out. And honestly, it hasn't been. Um, and frankly, there's a lot of in market incentive to not drive and build in a lot of the critical controls that are needed. Um, so there's, of course, again, still mostly leaning on the side of optimistic, I believe very much in the strength of industry to develop what's needed. Um, but whether it's on the security side um, or to promote development of the types of use cases that'll make good use of things like identity, um, I am, um, I I am skeptical also because of key challenges that are needed related to related to identity. Um, and I know that Brian, you mentioned that there's been um, <clears throat> we kind of skirted around it for so much of the conversation. The government has to take significant action here, um, which means support by Congress for certain uh, authorities and mandates and especially appropriations that are needed for this, but things like issuance of verifiable credentials um, to support things like not just not just having pictures of a driver's license that I've taken, which now in the wake of things like deepfakes um, and the current state of AI and the ability to create convincing images, um, whether of the credential or of like the person who, if you're doing a liveness check as part of a remote KYC process, um, you can create deepfakes to look like not like like not yourself. Um, so in the wake of all of that, what you need is verifiable credentials, which have existed for many years, to be able to be relied upon and issued, um, which really points to governments who are the authoritative owners of identity credentials um, used in access to regulated services like financial services. I think like your driver's license or a passport, getting an e-passport, getting a mobile driver's license. There are innovations that are currently happening um, at the state at the state level in the U.S. and of course digital identities have been embraced um, internationally uh, in certain jurisdictions for many years, but there's a lot that has to be done around things like interoperability um, and ensuring proper competitiveness, um, as well as proper like security and privacy preservation so that every time that you're using that mobile driver's license, it's not phoning home to let the DMV know, hey, I just used this driver's license to get access somewhere. Um, like Those kinds of controls are absolutely possible. Technology will meet these policy needs, um, but then you need the government, like you need government authorities to take timely action to create the, the foundational building blocks now for those digital economy developments that will take 25 years to build on top of. So my skepticism comes from needed action now, um, as well as creating the right incentives and regulatory frameworks for industry to develop um, the, uh, the right types of controls that will actually protect consumers down the road. So Dave, I know you have a lot of thoughts about what that future of uh, money will look like. So Things. How can you not be excited about the future of money? It's one of the most interesting things that are happening in technology and finance and the interaction of them. So I'm super excited about it. As we've said, you know, we know the challenges, there's many of them, but we also know that there's so much opportunity and amazing innovation that is going to happen. I would say also, the thing that excites me the most is money and how it's used and how it's valued and how it's transferred around the world has now been democratized. It's not just up to governments and people who worked in a few central banks and, and career politicians to decide on the future of money anymore. There are competitive sources out there, for example, cryptocurrencies, but there, uh, fintech is another one. There are all kinds of 
challengers to the existing fiat monetary system. They obviously have to integrate and we have to have risk controls across them. But uh, what an exciting time to be in this field. There's so many amazing things that are going to happen in the future of money, and it's happening now. Dave, I love ending on a note of optimism, and you've absolutely landed us there. So very much appreciated. I, too, share your excitement. Uh, but, you know, Carol, I, I also share your your skepticism and your sense of urgency, too. So uh, fantastic uh, final closing points. And again, sincerely appreciate the time and conversation. My guests have been Carol House and Dave Jevons, uh, both of them true experts in the crypto and monetary space more broadly, as you saw in abundance on this session. So Dave, thank you so much for being here. And Carol, thank you so much again for the time and the conversation. Thank you, Brian. This was great. Dave, a pleasure as always to chat about the future of money with you. And with that, we will close out this episode of the Financial Crime Cast. As always, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and many other places where the your favorite podcasts live. So please join us for a future episode. Please check out the Financial Crime Cast wherever you consume your podcasts. And uh, please stay tuned for more on the future of money. We'll be sure to have uh, Carol and Dave back again to Hopefully it won't take us uh, 20 to 25 years, but uh, we'll see maybe in a year or so how we're doing and how our predictions shook out. So thanks again to you both. And thanks again to our lovely audience for tuning in. Bye for now, everyone.